that was one of the things about licensing I loved. It really empowers the artist. Wow, we just put our song in a really cool commercial and they just gave us $100,000. Holy cow, well you know what that means for the next two years? You can do what you love. Hey, thanks for pressing play. My name's Adam Klaus, and this is So You Work in Entertainment, the podcast about jobs in the industry with the people who do them. You just heard today's guest, John Biondolillo, talking about music licensing. And if you think that topic's boring, you just haven't met John. The guy oozes charisma. I met him in L.A. about five years ago, never expecting to hear that he worked at the local radio station I listened to in Nebraska while I was growing up. There's no doubt that I was listening to artists because my friend from the future pushed to get them played. I really wanted to open today's episode with this excerpt from John. Hey, I drive a van, you know, like, how's it going? (laughs) But because he's my now friend in the present, I didn't. I just played it for you without context now. Ladies and gentlemen, John Biondolillo. Did you say my name right? John Biondolillo. Oh, that was nice. Better than most of my relatives. Really? Yeah, it was very smooth. John Biondolillo. So you work in entertainment? I do for a long time. And specifically, you want to talk about music today. Yes. Music and film. Yeah. Music and TV. Yeah. Music and advertising. Yeah. What? You, how would you describe it to like somebody like my mom who has no idea what any of how anything within the TV works? So music and TV in particular is, I'm going to say new. It's not new, but new in the sense of like, oh, wow, I heard that band on Grey's Anatomy. Oh, wow, I heard that band on uh, Shameless. Sure. That's kind of a relatively new thing. If you talk to music supervisors, people that are in charge of helping place music in TV shows on a film, work closely with the director, um, on a TV show, Uh, work closely with a showrunner, that's the distinction, right? If it's a TV show, the person running the show creatively is the showrunner. Sure. Typically the head writer, typically the creator. Yep. In a film, it's the director. Mm -hmm. Big, big distinctions. Yeah, and and to be a director is more kind of like, it's almost like a day player type of situation, but it's for like a week. Yeah, exactly. And the other, the, the other person in this whole mix, no pun intended, that's very, very influential is the editor. Because the editor is taking picture and whether it's a film mm-hmm. or TV, right? And they're starting to cut the final, sure. the final project, um, whatever it's going to be. And he or she is usually putting music to those scenes. Definitely. In the process to give them a guide, to give them a sense of of emotion, of feel. And the editor can really have a big influence on what music ends up in those scenes. Because yeah. if it's a film, the director's gonna walk into the editing bay and say, hey, how's it look? How's it feel? Oh man, I love this. And they sit down and they're like, wow, that's great. I love that. Same with a TV show. Sure. But to my, and we can, get, we can talk more about that as far as process goes, but historically, Bands didn't really want their music in television shows. Really? Yeah. I mean, it really wasn't like this badge of honor. And when you say new, how recent are you talking? Well, so in 99, 2000, when the recorded music business really started to fall off the cliff. Oh, sure. Because of Napster. Yep. And the rise of the internet and the big music 
company's denial that yep. the internet would have any influence or any impact on our business. <laughs> that way they were sorely mistaken. Yeah. And when recorded music started to fall out of, I don't want to say fall out of favor, but from a business standpoint, there was less and less opportunity for recorded music to render any kind of income, right? Prior to that, mid, late 90s, you go out and buy a CD. They were 16 bucks. Yep. I, I remember people saying this all the time and to this day, well, I just wanted one song. Yep. I heard one song on the radio and you went out and you plunked down your 15 bucks or your 16 bucks. Yep. And you bought your one song. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because I'm thinking in, in my mind at that time when I was buying CDs, $15 was a lot of money. It me. was a ton of money. Yeah. Minimum wage was three thirty five. It's crazy to think of. And you know? how many bands, like I think of um, Chambawamba. Yes. That was a CD that I had, and I don't know that I listened past, I think maybe the second you track didn't. was Tub Thumping. You, you yeah. didn't, but I'll bet that album sold, I'm going to riff, uh, 10 million copies. It's crazy. And and the amount of money that yeah. the major labels made, their profit margins were off the chart. So when all of a sudden music became free, holy cow, and the business model got turned on its head, Yeah, licensing exploded. Okay. Because prior to that, 10 bands out of 10 would be like, no way, I'm not putting my song in some TV show. Uh-uh. Sure. But then when there was less and less opportunity for recorded music to actually render some kind of return, bands were like, yeah, sure, let's do that. And slowly but surely, the floodgates just opened. Plus, you know, there was a lot of really fun usage of music in sure. TV. You know, I mean, it, it really started to turn a corner, you know, with the CW, you know, and those shows um, and cable. Everybody likes to point to the OC as kind of a moment, you know, in time. Sure. They did like featured music at the end of every episode, Yeah, right? absolutely. So yeah. not only were they using songs, but they also were very, very smart in recognizing like, hey, this could be a really big promotional vehicle sure. for the artists, for the labels. And then at a moment where labels and bands were looking for any promotion they sure. could get because the business was imploding, it just became this perfect storm. That makes sense. So now, almost 20 years later, I mean, just the competition to get your music in television and film is... It's intense. It's really, really intense. I mean, Elton John's in a Walmart spot right now. Yeah, that's you crazy know? to think of. And the list goes on and on. I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, Foo Fighters were in a, a T-Mobile spot in the Super Bowl. You know, now I think Grohl has been one of the more, you know, of that like Nirvana moment, that grunge moment, those bands would have kind of been probably the first some of the first bands to say, F you, we're not doing this. No yeah. way. I think Grohl was one of one of the artists that really saw the forest from the trees and was like, hey, you know what? I want people to hear my music. Sure. I have so much respect for him, and I, I don't think he's ever done anything like gross or smarmy. Honestly, like I rec I'm watching the Super Bowl. I recognize that tune in the T-Mobile spot, and I was like, yeah, right on. This is cool. Sure. Good for him. He it seems was, to be one of those guys that everything that I hear about him makes me like him more. I've yet to hear anything bad about Dave Grohl. He's amazing. Nor do I want to. He's, he's amazing. What a first act 
for it to end the way it ended, which was completely sad and tragic. You know, at a, a young age, I mean, how, how old was Grohl when that happened? 27, 28? I mean, he yeah. could have just like folded in the tents and been like, you know, later or turned into a real jerk, yep. you know, and he didn't. I mean, he recognized what that experience was with Nirvana and appreciated it and was grateful for it. And, you know, obviously when it ended, went in a closet and started picking up every instrument in the room and, yeah, you know, that first Foo Fighters record is all him basically. Yeah. So what is your, your role in this? You've kind of touched on it at different points, but well, Historically, so I was in the traditional record business, right? I got into the music business in the um, late 90s. And how did you get into it initially? Well, I was in radio Okay. prior to that. I got into radio when I was a teenager in upstate New York, you know, small town AM radio station. Okay. I was flipping burgers and serving soft serve ice cream with my best friend, and I hated it. And... He dared me one day. He was like, you should go work at that radio station. I was like, what am I going to do there? He's like, ah, you can talk and you know a lot about music. Okay, sure. So I just got my driver's license and I pull into this literally gravel parking lot of this radio station on the border of my small town and the small town next to us, the rival small town. And I walk in and I said, hi, can I talk to the program director? And there's a lady sitting at a desk and she's like, yeah, who are you? I'm like, oh, my name's John. I'm a junior in high school in Avon, and I wanted to talk about a job. (laughs) And she's like, hold on. And this guy came out, and he couldn't have been nicer. This guy, Dave, you know, he's showing me around. I mean, it's a little modular home, right, that they had converted. And the transmitters were, like, right there. This was a 1,000-watt daytimer. Okay. which is an old classification of AM radio stations. Okay. Which meant the station locally shared a frequency with a station miles, hundreds of miles away. Okay. So the station could only be on from sunrise to sunset because at night AM travels. Okay. It screams. So we shared our frequency with WBZ out of Boston, one of the big monster news stations in the country. Okay. WBZ. 10.30 a.m., you know, like that whole thing. We were 10, th- we were W-Y-S-L, Whistle Radio, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and the station was only on from sunrise to sunset. So in the summer, the station was on for, you know, a long time. In Wait, the- and the sunrise to sunset, is that because of at night, the waves physically travel through the air differently? In exactly. The, in the nighttime air setting. We okay. would interfere with BZ. Actually, we wouldn't even interfere with BZ. BZ would come in so powerful, they'd crush us. Over. <laughs> we wouldn't even, you wouldn't even be able to hear the station. Wow. Or, you know, it would bleed. So literally the transmitters were right there. You would like go in and turn the transmitter on big tube transmitters. You know, I mean, I probably have like some, I'm surprised I haven't like lost my hair. I was going to say, like, you should maybe get a brain scan. Dude, it was like, we'd get a lightning storm and they would arc. It was craziness. And you would like go in and you'd have to warm them up. And then you'd be like, I mean, it was like Chernobyl. I mean, you were like turning on these like insane old RCA transmitters. In my mind, this is all happening in black and white. You're like, (laughs) yeah, it might as well be. Yeah. I mean, this is like, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy to think about. I mean, this is like 35 years ago. So what did they give you for a job as your... your? Uh, I was a board op. A board op. Yeah. And that's where everybody starts. You know, back in the day in commercial radio, that's what you did. So 
here's the piece of trivia that becomes extremely topical at the moment. So I'm walking around the station. I'm getting the tour. I mean, dude, it's like <laughs> four rooms, you yeah. know? And all I hear is talk, right? Just people talking. And I'm like, what is that? And Dave is like, oh, it's talk radio. I'm 16 years old. I don't know what talk radio is. I mean, sure. I'm like, what do you mean talk radio? And they're like, well, that's our programming. We play music in the morning. And then we have talk shows, nationally syndicated talk shows all day and all weekend. So yeah, we need someone that sits behind the board and when they stop talking, plays our local commercials. Okay. And once an hour gets to go on the air and do the weather. Well, that's fun. It's sure. better than flipping burgers. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in. Right? So WYSL, Radio 1030 in Avon, New York, was one of the very first affiliates for Rush Limbaugh. Oh, wow. Yeah. One of his first 60 stations he had. Huh. And, you know, and I, again, I was 16 years old, and it's like, who's this guy? I mean, what the heck is he talking about? Then he came to Avon and did a show at our studio. What? <laughs> yeah. I, like, hung out with Rush Limbaugh That's in, like, so wild. 1988. And he was, like, the most soft-spoken, shyest person, you like, you'd ever meet. Huh. I mean, granted, the station owner was trying to get him to hang out with clients. And we, oh, it was awful. I mean, we did, like, this awful airport bar reception with him. And oh I was God. just like, man, this guy's making a tough living. Little did I know. I mean. It turned out okay for him. Yeah, not too bad, right? Yeah. Um, Airport bar reception seems so much sadder <laughs> when you realize it's a small town. So, so yeah, man. So that was my intro to the to the business. What was and, it like? Somebody brought a case of Coors Light to the runway, or like hanging? No, it was probably program? like you know Jenny Jenny Cremels, you know, on tap, beer of Rochester. But yeah, I mean that was my intro, and I loved it. I mean editing on tape and. You just fell in love with radio. It was just so, it was so much fun. That's fantastic. And I was always into politics and I was really into news. I was like, you know, I was just, when I was four years old, I would get up and, you know, watch the Today Show. It was, I was just always into news, always into news. I loved it. That's wild. So yeah, so I love this. And, but of course I wanted to get into like music radio, FM radio. And I, and I did, you know, I got a job at a top 40 station my senior year of high school. And, you know, that's really what I wanted to do. And then went to college in Ohio. Were you doing the same job at the top 40 station? or had No, you... they, well, they, my gig there was promotion at first. Okay. So I'd like drive the van around and hang banners at events and, gotcha. you know, stuff like that. That's pretty much like back again, back in those days, that's kind of like where you started okay. at a station. You know, it's like kind of being like a production coordinator. Sure. You know, a lot of stuff people don't want to do. And those stations, you know, remember pre-internet, they were doing events every single day, especially in the summer. Yeah. I mean, you know, at this water park, at this bar, at this beach, this gas station, <laughs> sure. right? And as an 18 year old kid, Again, it beats flipping burgers. Yeah, man, that sounds like you know, a fun it's game. like, hey, I drive a van, you know, like how's it going? <laughs> Believe me, I needed all the help I could get meeting girls. Immediate segue with the ladies. I drive a radio van. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, all right, yeah. So, so I was in radio, and I worked in radio all through college, and and then after college in Nebraska, in Omaha. Shout out to Nebraska. That's yeah. one of the things that John and I bonded over initially, is that he spent time in uh, three Nebraska. years in Omaha. I yeah. love Omaha. Yeah. Oh, 
What a great town. I went to school in Omaha. It's very fun to think of you in, in Omaha. In formidable years. I mean, like, you know, when you're in college and you graduate and now being in my, you know, mid to late forties, looking back and it's like, wow, those years, like they really shaped my opinions. They really shaped this insane career path I've been on. Sure. You know, I still have friends from that time, like good friends, really good friends. You know, like I always said, people I met in Omaha were like some of my closest friends only to be compared to the people that I met in college. Yeah. I loved Omaha. It was so much fun. And it was such a vibrant time there. And I met my first connections, friends in the record business there because I was the music director at the alternative rock station. The major- still around? It's gone. It's gone. It's gone. It was called The Edge. And- Of course, The Edge. Yeah, 101.9 The Edge. That was a big deal for me when, what years are we talking here? 95 to 98. 95 to 98. I was maybe a little young then, but- yeah. yeah, it was a minute before your time. And the station was on the air until I think 2000. That sounds right. I think it was on the air till 2000, 2001. Yeah, that's Because I right. left in 98 and I think it's I think it was there for another two, three years. I would not be surprised if there wasn't still a stereo with an edge sticker on it in my parents' house right now. Oh, cool. I still have a t-shirt. Someone sent me a picture of a bumper sticker the other day. Is it black and yellow? Is yes. That their thing? Yeah. 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 Story check. We out. had a Humvee. That was our station vehicle. Oh, wow. Yeah. Bad for the environment, but great for radio, huh? Yeah, absolutely. That was, that was way sexier than the van. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> hey, I got a Hummer. I mean, it, it was like, you know, 1996. Oh, that no was... one was driving Hummers on the road. For sure. Like they were like, I think we got it in Colorado. We took oh it. Oh my God. I so, this is like, it's weird that your story is coming back to me. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. I know. And we took it not to off it, but we took it to like this military because no one could even change the oil. Like we had to take it to like this military mechanic. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was, I mean, because this is like the original H1 Hummer. This is it not was like the driving H2. around in a living room. Like you're driving this thing and someone's in the passenger side. You could, like, I could because I'm tall and had long arms, but there were people, you couldn't even reach over to the passenger <laughs> side. I mean, the thing was gigantic. That's it was gig- It was diesel, too. But that's where I met my first, you know, so the major labels had field reps. Okay. Out of Kansas City, St. Louis, Minneapolis, Chicago. And they would come to town to promote the various artists on these major labels. And sure. Take us to lunch, take us to dinner. It was a blast, you know, and you're the music director. They all, you know, and I had some influence there. I got records on the, on the radio there. Do you we have were, a band that sticks out that you got? We were one of the first stations in the country to play Matchbox 20. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you can judge me, you know, however you want. John, I'm um, not judging you. I had Matchbox 20, that album with the guy wearing the like old school pilot hat, <laughs> the, the fat guy, like... I that was Rob Thomas was was in my ear all the time. Here's here's the here's how the the whole thing kind of comes full circle in this like long winded ridiculousness. So we were probably one of the earliest supporters of Dave Matthews band, too. Okay, And I loved I loved Dave Matthews. I just I loved what they were doing. It was just, you know, because remember, this is 19, you know, this is 1995, 1996. I mean, all the grunge that's, you know, fit to print. And then it was also all the post-grunge stuff. Limp Bizkit, Korn. 
I mean, it was just like, ugh. I mean, you know, all yeah. this, all the faux outrage. I mean, faux <laughs> outrage. That's a good way to. You know, it. it was just. And then here's this guy who's writing real songs with a like insane band. Like, who yeah. are these guys? Those guys. The bass player seventeen. What? Yeah. Holy cow! They were just. They were amazing. You know, and they built their whole business around touring, and Omaha which I didn't understand before I moved there, you know, somewhere in middle America. Yep. Right in the middle of the country. It was a routing gig. So everybody played there. So you would see bands. It was incredible, right? They would come to town and they would play the Ranch Bowl. Yep. 500 seats. Rest in peace. Yes, gone. It's a Walmart now. Yep. I mean, I can't tell you. My first job in Omaha was in the hallway of the Ranch Bowl. Ugh, I saw so many bands at the Ranch Bowl. Yeah, and you would see him play the Ranch Bowl. Yeah, and then the Ranch Bowl, which, by the way, for context, it's a bowling alley. It was this a twenty. The, it was a twenty-two lane bowling alley, and in the back, with three bars. Then they also had this live music room that was extremely renowned. I mean, Green Day played there on the yep. way up. Pearl Jam played there on the way up. Chili Peppers. Matt Markle, rest in peace, who owned the Ranch Bowl and was the local promoter. I mean, this guy had a real vision. He got everybody in that room. I loved the Ranch Bowl. It was amazing. It was an amazing place. So to be part of the scene there, because you would see like, you know, Semisonic was from Minneapolis. And, well, they would come to town and play the Ranch Bowl. And then four months later, as closing time is going up the chart, wow, you know, now they're playing the music hall. And they're in front of 1,500 people, 2,000 people. Sure. And now they come back and they're playing the Coliseum opening for, you know, Dave Matthews Band. I'm riffing. But, you know, Dave Matthews' band, Omaha, was a huge market for that band. Huge market for that band. And, and you know, and there we were, this 100,000-watt FM radio station. You talk about a big signal. Holy cow. I mean, you could get the station on the border of Colorado and Nebraska. Yeah. And it was the only FM radio station we had a big influence, and it was a very vibrant market. People had money, and the economy was good. Like, they're selling records. So record labels were there all the time. That's so cool. And it was a blast. I had tickets to everything. I was, you know, getting taken out to dinner. It was a riot. Sure. You're 25 years old, and it's like, yeah, okay, I make $20,000 a year, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's all about the <laughs> perks, baby. Everything I want to do is free. Yeah. Um, you know, someone's there buying me drinks. Yeah, cruising Great. in a Hummer. <laughs> Exactly. So from there, I got my first job in the record business in Chicago. I got a job with Electra. Okay. And what were you doing in that? Promotion. Yeah. Promotion. Because I was like, oh, okay, let's take a radio guy and have him promote radio guys. He knows the he knows, he knows the that side, side of the game. Yeah. Exactly. So I did that in Chicago for about a year. I went to New York for a couple of years. I came to LA for a year. And then they unceremoniously fired me, which was great because I was miserable. I did not like the major label setting. What about it? I mean, all of it. You know, I was the guy that pulled for the underdog band. You know, I was like, come on, let's get old. Let's break old 97s. You know, let's let's break feeder. Let's break, uh, you know, these were all bands, you know, we were working at the time. Let's break Remy Zero. And, you know, the chairman uh, at the time, you know, she wanted big hits. Sure. She wanted big crossover multinational hits, which of course I understand. But again, when you're 
26, 27 years old and you're just a music lover, you know, and these bands are like so amazing. Why aren't they getting more attention? You know, how come nobody likes Spoon? Spoon was originally on Elektra, which is a whole other story. Google that saga. But anyway, so I was in LA, they let me go. And that's where it comes back to Dave Matthews. In all of that time, Dave started a label called ATO Records in 99, 2000. Okay. He had obviously already become, you know, wildly successful and him and his still to this day manager and, and two partners. So, well, let's start a label that we can, you know, sign bands we love sure, and help them out, you know, give them some resources. And they did. And they started ATO and put out a record by uh, a UK artist named David Gray. And David Gray had been on EMI prior to that. I remember the um, music video for this. It was like at a gas station or something. For Babylon? Yes. So so prior to David signing to ATO, he had been on EMI. Okay. And put out three amazing albums on EMI. Couldn't get arrested. You know, they sold like 40, 50,000 copies, which for that moment in time was nothing. Sure. I mean, that was just considered failure. Amazing albums. He got dropped. Recorded. Babylon, literally in his bedroom. Nobody wanted it. And ATO signed him. And a year and a half later, it sold two and a half million records. Wow. And shortly after that, they hired a few people. And I was one of them. I was living here. And I really didn't want to do promotion. And they were like, well, you know, we really need somebody to kind of come in. They were they were pretty vague. They were like, we just kind of need somebody to be a label manager and kind of interface you know, with a lot of different people. And I was like, all right, cool. And I really wanted to be back in New York. I hated LA. So I went, I moved back and was working there. You know, we went through kind of a, um, a moment where we started to sign a lot of bands. My Morning Jacket, Ben Queller, Patty Griffin, Mike Doty, and this, this one artist in particular from Wales, Jem, J-E-M. Okay. And it was so outside of anything we had ever done before. You know, it was just these like really smart pop tunes, kind of Beth Orton meets Dido with a few more beats, some really interesting samples, but nothing like really outrageously, just unique. Okay. A little esoteric, but really smart songs. And Nick Harcourt at the time was hosting Mornings Become Eclectic, and he was a huge fan. And was was playing this music here. And now, so now we're talking about 2002, 2003, 2003, 2004. Okay. Is when this kind of started to take off. And the business is, has imploded, right? Sure. The business is, is, is shrapnel across the field. Everybody's nobody knows hard what. drives are so rich with Napster tunes at this point. Absolutely. And nobody really knows what to do. And I was fortunate in the sense of like, okay, I'm at this small company. We don't have this massive overhead. We're well-funded. You know, we had a big hit prior to me getting there. We had a good partnership with a major label, RCA Records at the time. So we were kind of in this world, this like indie label world, if you will, but with major label resources. So we were insulated a bit from like the complete disarray of, of the world. iTunes had just come online. So there I am at ATO with my first iPod and this 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 album from this woman Gem called Finally Woken. And you know, we're excited about it, but again, it was so outside of what, you know, the label was built on 
Americana touring artists. And here this, here's this smart aleck girl from Wales. Like, what the heck are we going to do with this? And again, Harcourt's playing all the music here in L.A. And what do a lot of music supervisors listen to in L.A.? KCRW. Sure. So kind of all of a sudden, we start getting requests for her music to be in TV shows. And it's, whoa, what is that? What? They want to pay us $17,000 to put her show, put her song <laughs> on a show? Um, uh, yeah, sure, we'll do that. Absolutely. So now to us at the label, it completely opened our eyes to that world. Sure. Um, I got to, you know, give credit to where credit's due. There was a music placement company out there that we hired to work on Gem. Okay. Gem had a publishing deal at Universal and a woman that worked at Universal and then left to go out on her own. Her name was Marissa Baldy now. And she was a huge fan of Gem and she started her own company and she was like, hey, I really want to work this to try to get her on TV shows and in movies. And we were like, yeah, okay, great. And she totally got it and completely understood what she had we didn't really understand what it was because we didn't have anything else that was getting, you sure. know, this kind of attention. Sure. You know, we didn't Crossover. have. Yeah. So all of a sudden, wow, holy cow, the power of TV. These songs start landing on television shows. And of course, it took a lot of work and a lot of effort. You know, Alex Patsavis, who's a very influential music supervisor, she got Gem really early got her on the OC, and then Grey's Anatomy. I mean, several tracks in the early early days of Grey's Anatomy. And and these the other thing, too, these television shows had huge audiences. Sure. Right? This is all pre-streaming. Yep. Right? So, I mean, you know, George Clooney, you know, when people ask him, you know, how he was so successful, you know, Mr. Modesty, well, you know, I was pretty lucky. and But one of the things he always point to is ER. Yeah, ER was huge. 40 million people a week huge. Yeah. I mean, that's like, what? Yeah. You can't even grasp that now. Yeah. You know, if you're on a, if you're on a, a, a procedural drama <laughs> and your show is somewhere between five, you know, two and a half, five million viewers a week. That's a smash hit. You're yeah. psyched. Yeah. It's doing well. People are happy. 40 it's like, hey, 40 million people a week watched me on a television show for saving lives. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, it doesn't hurt. He's, you know, he's pretty easy on the eyes. Yeah, pretty good looking, you know, not bad. Yeah. Good haircut. Um, so he always has had great hair. He always has, right? Yeah. Yeah. So so that was like my first kind of foray into, you know, and, and really what we're talking about is music licensing. Sure. Right? That's what it is. So a TV show comes along and says, hey, we want to put this song. And, and this is where it commonly gets confused amongst artists, maybe your mom, people just trying to understand the process. It's like, oh, well, do you, you sell the songs to the show? No, you don't ever sell anything. You license it. So you enter a licensing agreement with the producers of the television show or the, the studios making the film. Sure. And you allow them to sync the song to the scene on a non-exclusive basis. Okay. Is it ever exclusive? 
they better write a big fat check. Yeah, I was gonna say like a, that... a a big fat check. Yeah. It's just not worth it for the show, right? No. In advertising, it can be an exclusive relationship. Yeah. Almost always an exclusive relationship, but just for a period of time. Mm -hmm. Not on a perpetual basis. Not forever. Yeah. They can do it one of two ways. If they want it exclusive for all advertising, then the check gets really, really substantial. Sure. What they'll usually do is they'll make it exclusive for the category. Right. I always think of that song... Um, Uptown Funk. Yeah, there was a week where I had four auditions that had Uptown Funk as the music for it listed. Sure, it happens. Yeah, yeah. No, there's a I song mean... that's like a song that's just like such a smash hit, and it's fun. Every brand wants to be associated with that, like light, airy feeling. Yeah, of it being summer. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, on the label side, and I think even you know this can be true today, but. You just don't, it was like back in the old days, oh, we got to get songs on the radio, got to get songs on the radio. And sure, you still do. Um, and you want them on, you know, obviously the streaming services and the appropriate playlists. But at the end of the day, you don't know how people are going to react to it. Sure. They might, eh, that's okay. Or it might really resonate and really hit a chord and really become an emotional, there might be a very visceral emotional response. And I got to see this artist. I got to buy all their merch, I, you know, but you have no idea sure. that that's going to happen. Songs are in commercials all the time and they go nameless, faceless. Yep. But you know, Phoenix, Phoenix was in a Cadillac commercial in 2005, 2006. Phoenix had been away for, for quite a while. And then all of a sudden they came back and Man, that Cadillac spot, I watch a lot of CNBC, that Cadillac spot was on every five minutes. Wow. It was absolute insanity. And it had a major impact on that album. Hmm. You know, huge, huge impact on that album. It's interesting because most people watching aren't consciously thinking, I want to get this CD. Well, if they hear album. it enough and, and, and they like it, right? Shazam yep. obviously taught us that. Yeah. It's like a gradual effect that it just kind of creeps up on you. Mm -hmm. And I feel that way with a lot of music. I, I start out not really liking it and then I can't get it out of my head. Well, I always had a thing with music because I was in a position, not so much at the moment, but I was in a position where people would, and and I don't say this with like any pretense or you know or hubris thank you but people would say hey tell me what you think of this you know hey we're, we're looking for a deal or hey this manager loves this and I always would try to put music on during my everyday life mm -hmm. you know like oh it's Saturday and yeah I guess I got to clean my apartment got this cool iPod not even yeah not on. even iPod just like throw it on the stereo and I if it stopped me you know like in my everyday life, I'm on the phone, like talking to somebody and like, Hey, hold on a sec. Whoa, that's really, that's wow. That's cool. That's really good. You know, that was always kind of just a barometer for me. Sure. You know, like, wow, man, I was just like, I wasn't even paying attention. Sure. You know, it was on, I was doing something I really didn't want to do. It was, or maybe I was cooking dinner. Holy cow. What is this? Yeah. Stops in your tracks. Yeah. You know, um, which I know kind of sounds cliche and like, duh, but that was always just a thing for me. Who's the last um, band that did that for you? Oh man. Or artist, I should say. Wow. That's hard. To, that's hard to say. 
There's a project right now, um, this band Camp. I like his voice a lot. Really cool voice. This artist from the UK, this kid named Dan Kroll. Okay. Um, after, so after I left ATO and I, my eyes had been opened to this whole licensing world and, and while I was at ATO, I kind of took over that, that the licensing area. Aspect. Yeah. And I was in New York and I would come to LA, you know, once a quarter and I would meet with music supervisors and, you know, anyone kind of involved with placing music in TV and film. And I just really started to enjoy that process, both creatively and administratively because the administrative side is pivotal because as a songwriter as an artist you really have to understand what you're signing sure the money's great you know like you're trying to pay rent you're just trying to get to the next gig yeah and that was one of the things about licensing i loved it really empowers the artist wow we just put our song in a really cool commercial and they just gave us a hundred thousand dollars Holy cow. Well, you know what that means for the next two years? You can do what you love. Sure. You can go play Omaha. You can play Shubas in Chicago. You can go play the Mercury Lounge in New York. You can do that. You can hone your craft. You can get better. You can improve. You can grow your fan base. I loved that aspect of, of music licensing. Loved what that money could mean. Sure. But as an artist, you really have to understand because look, you're dealing with some of the biggest companies in the world and the contract they put in front of you. It's not a one pager. <laughs> not only that, who's it going to favor? Yeah. It's going to favor them, mm -hmm. period. And there's just stuff you're never going to be able to change. You know, the networks and the studios are going to want to license your music on a perpetual basis. Yep. That's just how it's going to be, but it's non exclusive. So if Shameless put your song in season two and it's there forever and ever, because now it is pretty much forever, yeah, it Shameless is, is going to live on a streaming service for a really, really long time. Yeah. It doesn't mean your song can't be in Stranger Things, mm -hmm. you know, or can't be in the new Martin Scorsese movie. It's fine. But you really have to, it's very, very nuanced. It's a really technical thing. So you really have to, and that gave rise of like all these music placement companies that are out there now, which after ATO, I decided I wanted to do. So I was going to put a roster of artists together and go out there and chase music placement. You and know? This, these are artists that you already, that you're finding yourself, or this is a deal like a, as a side thing from ATO, you're moving on, but you're going to push for some of their artists. I left ATO. Yeah. Completely left ATO. Okay. And you know, for six months, like just kind of thought about, okay, what could I do? What do I want to do? I didn't really want to go work at another, at another label per se, but I still wanted to advocate for artists. And I loved the whole licensing world and I had a command of it. I really understood it. And I was like, okay, so yeah, I'll go to LA and do that for a year. And then <laughs> a year became 10 years. But yeah, so it was just a roster of artists that a few artists I had worked with at ATO, initially a band called Dawes, you know, that I was very instrumental in, in bringing into ATO, a band called Gomez, who I worked really closely with at ATO. They're from, from the UK, Liverpool originally. Yeah. And, and then a manager from the UK sent me this kid, Dan Kroll, and he had this tune called From Nowhere. And it really, literally was like just from nowhere. Who is this kid? So how does the process of it work? Let's say I'm a, I'm a showrunner. 
Yeah. I'll use TV as an example. Are you trying to contact me and actively get your bands in front of me or? I would love to get, yeah. I mean, getting to a showrunner. Yeah. Amazing. And you know, these days we can pretty much get to anyone, right? Yeah. Beauty of the internet. But if the show has a music supervisor, that's the way to go. So the music supervisor, like, how does it, how does it actually work? Like you get an email or what? Yeah. The the music super, the music supervisor, there's a few ways. If it's a new show, like let's say they just shot a pilot. Okay. They shot a pilot and the pilot got greenlit and they're going to series. So they're going to use that pilot as maybe a template for the music. They're going to be like, okay, did you see the pilot? Here's what we had in it. This is what, you know, the showrunner loves. We feel like, you know, this band and that band really fit the tone. He loves Alabama Shakes and the and there's a teenage girl in the family and she's, you know, Billie Eilish fan, you know. Sure, sure. So it's kind of stuff like that. You know, especially after a season or two, the show has a tone. And if you're trying to get music placed in a show, you better know the tone of the show. Sure. <laughs> because music supervisors, everybody on the show is like, you know, working really hard. They're really stressed typically, especially if it's TV. If it's TV in real time. It's their life, yeah. Yeah, and and when I say, like, when I mean in real time, this model is probably more akin to the, you know, traditional networks. You're on kind of 10-day schedules. Mm -hmm. So if they're working on an episode right now, it's probably going to air in 10 days to two weeks. They don't have a lot of time to mess around. Sure. So if they put a call out like, oh, here's the scene, and this is what's happening, and it's a big moment and well, you better know the tone of the show because you know, if you're pitching them a rock band and they don't typically use rock bands, you look like an idiot and then they're not going to come back to yeah, you. Yeah, You're not getting that call again. Yeah. So you're like a curator and you throw them how many options? Well, they, they might say like, mm. send me two, send me two ideas, send me three ideas. You might not have that many ideas. Sure. You might have one. Uh, I was a very boutique operation small roster 10 artists nine artists it's and hard. those artists are exclusive to you yeah in that in in tv and film so you're their guy yeah for tv and film yeah exactly but these companies that have been doing this a long time and you know really grown with the business i mean they've got hundreds of artists thousands of tracks you have to sure you know you you really you know, it's a you, volume game. Yeah, it's a big time volume game because it's so subjective too. Sure. You know, oh, I have the perfect song for this scene. Yeah, yeah. And then they put it up the picture and the editor's like, no, nah, it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't work. Out. Give me another idea. It's hard. And look, I mean, you fall in love with a band or you fall in love with songs. And it was always a secondary thought for me. Like, oh, could this work in TV? Could this work in a film? Or Dawes is a great example. I love that band. Mm-hmm. Love them. Nothing but respect for what they've what they've built um, over the last decade. But their songs are very narrative in structure, mm-hmm. very lyrically dense. Those are hard songs to place. Sure. In TV and film, they could step on dialogue. Yep. And the stories, like you know, Taylor tells, and his songs are amazing. But they've got to be very, very specific. There's got to be a moment, or there's got to be a storyline in the show or the film where they're looking to parallel. Sure. It's got to sync up. Yeah. Songs like that, you know, like, yeah, they can just be playing in a bar. They can just be background source. Sure. Why not? 
But songs like that, I mean, the beauty of those songs are the lyrics. Sure. And the stories they tell. So. Especially in TV. I feel like it's maybe easier in film, right? Where they have a little more time to play with. Yeah, that's a good, that's, that's really astute. Yeah, it's true. You know, I always said those songs need a minute to breathe. Yeah. Where in TV, yeah, it's a lot quicker. There's no patience. Yeah. Like, get to it, get to it, get to it. <laughs> exactly. We have to get to commercial in two and a half Only minutes. if, you know, only if the Irishman was, uh, you know, was was contemporary. Yeah. Put lots of Dawes songs. You would have there. so much room for <laughs> Dawes in the Irishman. That movie took me three sessions. To, it actually was five sessions. Total, I, I ended up, I fell asleep in two of them. And then it took me three sessions of an hour and change to get through. I had a rare Sunday afternoon where my wife took my son and I knew they were going to be gone long enough. I'm like, I'm doing it. I'm watching the Irishman. <laughs> and I watched the whole thing beginning to end. I loved it. I, I loved it. I, um, I'm going to withhold my comment on the movie, but I, I read the book and I really, I really enjoyed the book. And this is one of the few <laughs> instances for me where it was like, I read the book going into the movie and it, it just, I felt like I didn't get rewarded for reading the book. Huh? Yeah. I can't comment on the book. I'm just it's a good book. Historically, such an underread person. It's it's embarrassing. It's a great book. It took about the same amount of time as the movie to watch. If there's if there's one thing I will demand as a parent, mm -hmm. my son reads. That will be like the one fixing past mistakes. Like yeah, <laughs> you will read a lot. <laughs> So you are a solo operator mm -hmm. in this, right? Mm -hmm. It's interesting to me how the music industry has changed so much, right? And Drastically. <laughs> yeah, you're right there along with it. I mean, from switching on the Frankenstein machine however many years ago instead of flipping burgers to now pitching bands to be in streaming TV shows. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's still... I mean, it's still... There's still television shows. Yeah. Just how we receive them and how we consume them is entirely different. And and also, you know, it's so weird to think about too. You mentioned this, how the OC, you know, initially, you know, at the end of the OC, yep. tonight's episode featured music by. Because they would also play the music video a little bit too, right? Yeah. 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 yeah I think there was, um, yeah, they would do like, I think they would do a featured Yes. Maybe they would do like one featured artist. Yep. But now with streaming, you don't even really need that anymore. I mean, they yeah. do music guides. I remember like when they when they first started like a music guide for for an epi for a for a show, like, "Oh, wow. Here's all the songs listed from the episode." You know, now with streaming, you pause it shazam yep you can watch it whenever you want you can watch it over and over you know like there's no waves from boston crushing out everything throughout the darkness of night no anymore. i mean you want to watch it at 4 a.m go for it exactly you know three in the afternoon hey what was that tune in that scene it's just so and it's great because i at the end of the day like out of necessity music licensing you know exploded but at the same time i always viewed it as just a really un, another amazing way to get artists seen and heard. Sure. Especially artists, you know, that we were working on at ATO. I mean, it was esoteric, you know, you really had to be in the know to know. Sure. And it's, and it's not because like the stuff we were doing was like, so 
life changing or we weren't gravitating to artists that were that we thought oh my god this is so commercial this could be a smash hit no we were sure. like wow, this band is really working hard and they've got a great infrastructure and a good smart manager and they're focused and they're writing good music. And you know what? Maybe in 10 years, they will be really commercial. But right now, we just love what they're doing. So, you know, for us, it was just like, whoa, ABC wants to put one of our songs in their promo? Sure. For Desperate Housewives? What's that? Yeah, let's do that. A month later, Desperate Housewives is one of the biggest phenomenons in American culture. Sure. <laughs> and they were on the cover, of, right along with cover of Newsweek. I mean, it was, they were massive. It was a massive, you know, massive moment. Um, and the, the artist Gem that I mentioned was in the very first promo for Desperate Housewives. Wow. And it was, it was the most theatrical promo I don't even know if they would run something like this now. They had two. They had they had a 60, 60 seconds. Wow, that's really <laughs> crazy long for a promo. No VO. Wow. And it was just the song, Finally Woken. No, I'm sorry. It was Come On Closer was the tune. And it was just all these provocative images of all the housewives. Oh, she's taking a bath. Oh, you know, just just these crazy images of the whole cast. Okay. And there's this tune playing. And quite honestly, one of our biggest failures, we couldn't connect the artist to the opportunity. Here was a song getting millions and millions of impressions. Sure. Remember, this is pre-Shazam. Pre yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like whatever that song the was. The opportunity was almost bigger than we could even... Harness, right? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was so massive. It was like, okay, because that song wasn't on the radio. It wasn't getting radio airplay. ABC knew of the artist and knew that she was emerging. And the song was per, I mean, I'm sure it's on, you know, YouTube somewhere. Sure. You know, look up a Desperate Housewives promo with, with the song Come On Closer. It's an amazing promo. <laughs> it's cool that the, the song was the storytelling in a, in a lot of that. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Exactly. And I can imagine how rewarding that would be if you're in the in the business that you're in to be that connector, right? You're the one who puts the pieces together. It's cool, you know. And but the thing is, you also have to give a lot of credit to the creative team on the production side, whether it's a commercial, or, sure that they know what to ask for. Or yeah, what looking for, because yeah. a lot of times they won't show you creative. They do occasionally, especially if it's a bigger artist. Sure. And it's like, okay, what am I putting my song up against? What is yeah. this? They'll at least give you a written brief. And a lot of times they'll show you footage sure. too. You know? So it's like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, this is going to be really great. Um, because they know. They've gotten better at learning how to ask. Sure. You know, and understand why an artist might have creative hesitation. You know, well, why would your brand be hesitant to align with whatever? Yeah, the brand. Sure. Your, your client's going to ask a lot of questions. Yeah. You know, because I think, and I could be, I could be wrong. My memory may misserve me, but it seems like when it really started to explode, it's like there was almost an arrogance. Like, well, what do you mean they don't want to do it? Or why won't they be in our commercial? Or what they're saying no? 
How could they? Yeah, they're they're turning down money as a recording artist. Yeah, and the, and the the other thing, you know, when I was talking about the administrative being so important, I would be totally remiss with the explosion of this space. The other thing that's happened, unfortunately, is there's been a consistent downward pressure on rates. Sure. That you know, networks and brands and ad agencies and production companies will pay. Sure. For music, you know, obviously with marquee A-list artists, yeah, you're going to write the check. Yeah, they kind of set the price on <laughs> what they want there. And I always call it creative will. If they really want the song, they're going to find the money. Sure. They will find the money. Yeah. <laughs> um, you'll find out how bad they want it. It's such an important part of of the emotion that they're trying to convey. And there's there's so much wrapped up in it. I know I, one of my favorite bands, Cloud Cult, I found them through a commercial. It Do you remember a, what it was? Yeah, it was a, I want to say it was Progressive. And they're a band that famously doesn't really do many endorsements or anything, but Progressive was coming out with the whole, we're a green insurance company, we okay. don't print stuff. And so they paired up with that and the song was Lucky Today. This is where like the landscape is kind of blended a little bit because I had the lyrics and I Googled the lyrics and from that I found the band. And as a result now, like I have signed lyrics of the band hanging up in my office and that's all from a what progressive a story. commercial. Yeah. There it is. Test case right there. Case study yeah. on how it's supposed to work. I mean, the painting in our hanging in our living room is the band has live painters that go and tour with them. And when the set starts, they just start with a blank canvas and they just kind of go. There's two painters. And at the end of the set, there's this beautiful painting that's silent auctioned off throughout the set. Anyway, for our wedding, Laura got a painting commissioned by one of the painters of that band. And again, the band that I found through a commercial. So this work is like super important. I mean, some of the most meaningful songs that I listen to are from that. I don't know how else I would have found the band. Well, historically, there's brands out there and ad agencies that love this. I mean, they want to be part of it. They Mm want to be part of an artist, you know, an artist's development. I mean, the, the one that always comes up always always comes up is nick drake pink moon in a volkswagen spot okay i was living in omaha and i'm gonna say this was 96 or 97 and it was again just one of those spots no vo can't remember what car it was for might have been the golf couple nighttime driving along sunroof open all the stars mm-hmm. and there's this tune pink moon this unbelievable voice you know like whoa who I'd never heard of Nick Drake. I didn't know who he was. And I was, man, I got to find out who that is. And he had passed away. I think he died in the mid-70s. And again, physical albums were still being sold. Yep. His sales, they exploded. His records went from like, yeah, we got one or two copies to like, um, hi, we need a case of Nick Drake now. Well, Like it was that insane 300 400 500 percent like it was nuts sure i'd love to know like who i'm sure there's a lot of people to take credit for that these yeah, days yeah. but i'd love to know like you know here's this singer songwriter committed suicide had been dead for 20 years but man the tune just worked to that picture and it was perfect. It was great for the brand. You know, sure. Volkswagen was Seems doing like really wins. awesome music alignments in that moment of their history. They st- still do. But it was like, again, the beginning of a lot of this and really memorable stuff. And I would, yeah, I'd love to know 
you know, who made that call. But there's, you know, lots of stories like that. Sure. Well, thank you for sharing your story with me today. I really enjoyed it. It's a fascinating world. Yeah, thanks for having me. So there you have it. As if his last name couldn't get any cooler, the name of his company is Above and Beyond. B-I-O-N-D. John Biondalillo, ladies and gentlemen. If you like what you hear, subscribe and tell your friends. Coronavirus permitting, I'll be releasing new episodes every Thursday for the foreseeable future. I just scheduled a really exciting interview, and I can't wait to share it with you guys. If there's a job in entertainment you want to hear more about, email me, adam at soyouworkinentertainment.com. That's Adam, A-D-A-M. But if you needed me to spell that out, whew, good luck with the email. 